This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. In Shakespeare's comedy, Much Ado About Nothing, Leonardo says, I pray thee peace, I will be flesh and blood, for there was never yet philosopher that could endure the toothache patiently. However, they have writ the style of gods and make a push at chance and sufferance. These lines serve as the inspiration for the title of a new book from today's guest, Donovan Sherman. The Philosopher's Toothache, Embodied Stoicism in Early Modern English Drama, was published by Northwestern University Press in 2022. Donovan is a professor of English at Seton Hall University. His previous book is Second Death, Theatricalities of the Soul in Shakespeare's Drama from Edinburgh University Press. The Philosopher's Toothache is a meditation on the conceptual latticing of early modern theater and the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. Writers explored in the book range from James I to Shakespeare and Ben Jonson. The prose is lapidary, meditative, and comforting in the best way. I genuinely enjoyed The Philosopher's Toothache. I'm excited to welcome Donovan Sherman to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I think readers will be surprised by the way you describe stoicism. We tend to associate it with a kind of white-knuckling self-discipline and a kind of mean-spirited moralism. Instead, you describe it as a philosophy of openness and attentiveness to the world around us, complemented with a healthy amount of self-skepticism. What is the stoic approach to inhabiting the world? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that the the popular conception of Stoicism is very much one of a kind of ascetic self-discipline, almost to the point of parody. And it's taken on that valence, I think, in popular culture. And there's many historical reasons for why that's the version of Stoicism that washes up on on the shore uh, in our contemporary time. But my revisioning of Stoicism as, as you say, something that is open and attentive um, and, and to use a word we might use today, mindful, is actually more of a return, not a kind of new, bold uh, suggestion of what it might mean or changing its meaning, but in fact, a kind of return to an original conception of Stoicism. And I think one helpful way we can think of of the difference between the two or why that came about is that sure, if you read a lot of Stoic literature in the ancient original Greek, and then later popularized by uh, Roman philosophers and, and emperors like Marcus Aurelius, it's true that you do occasionally get some, and quite often get a version of Stoicism that veers into self parody in terms of its demands on us uh, abandoning our appetites and our desires for things other than that which we get through pure reason and judgment. Okay, so so there is that version of Stoicism that at its most, most extreme means that we should live only by what, what we need to survive um, and we kind of live in blissful misery uh, in the world as a result. But what 
I noticed, and, and, and I'm building on, on a lot of other great thinkers here, but what I noticed in reading that material is that the figure who often is that satirical, <laughs> white-knuckling, as you put it, figure of, of Stoicism is always labeled and framed as a sage, okay, as, as the absolute ideal, right? So that's the kind of North Star that a Stoic needs to orient themselves towards. But actual Stoicism resides in the messy, lived reality of trying to attain that, almost knowing that that is impossible, right? So maybe the most famous archive of, of Stoic thought that we have is Seneca's uh, letters to Lucilius, sometimes called letters to a young philosopher, his epistles, they're, they're labeled differently in different translations. Um, but that's really just uh, more than 100 letters of, of Seneca scolding, uh, all, you know, all affectionately, but scolding a friend of his to kind of get his life in order and do things. And, uh, and yes, he's espousing Stoic principles. But what I love about that text is that it's very much almost acknowledging on the reader's part that that's we're Lucilius, right? We're not going to be um, a Stoic sage. There have only been a handful, right? We can't attain that perfection. Instead, Stoicism is the ways in which we modify our disposition and behavior. And in order to do that, your your wonderful question is how do we inhabit the world? Well, that in order to inhabit the world in a Stoic way, you need to attune yourself to an understanding of judgment, right? That's a key term. Seneca says, what is virtue? It is judgment. Now, what are you judging? You're judging whether or not things that emerge in your consciousness arise from a place of reason, which for the Stoic is divine. And this is something the Neo-Stoics will pick up on and play with in a kind of Christian way. Or whether it is uh, the passions, right? A false impression that you're getting of the outside world, okay? And in order to attune our sense of judgment and to discern between these things, we need to commit uh, ascesis, exercise. That's where we get the word exercise, as a matter of fact. It's from the same term that the Stoics use. We need to behave and view the world a certain way. We need to be aware of the thoughts that are emerging in our minds, of the physical sensations that arise in our bodies. You know, there's a, a wonderful letter, uh, uh, essay, excuse me, of Montaigne's where he sort of notices that for thinkers like Seneca and other Stoics, even though they are always trying to attain a place of absolute self-discipline, uh, Montaigne notes that they're always perspiring. They're always sweating, you know, like someone trying to stay still on stage. There's always a kind of effort that it takes. And, you know, Montaigne notes that kind of affectionately. And I think that's how a Stoic inhabits the world. You're aware of your own reactions to things. It's not that if someone cuts you off when you're driving on the highway, uh, you just don't get mad. And instead, you exist in a pure state of realizing, oh, that is a thing indifferent. Uh, and I shall not attach myself to it. And I shall blissfully go through the world, even if my life shall end in a mere, you know, a few seconds. Uh, instead, you, of course, feel anger. And then you note that and you say, huh, I just felt anger. Now, why is that? And there's the judgment and there's the exercise of virtue. So it's there's an attentiveness, there's an openness both to the world, but also to the reflection, even microcosm of the world within one's own consciousness. That's wonderful. But I also want to lean into the to the provocations of Stoicism a little bit. The Greek Stoic Epictetus, who, who lived between 50 and 135, uh, CE suggests that when putting our child to bed, when kissing our own child on the forehead, we should whisper to ourselves in our minds, tomorrow he will die. Okay, Donovan, what should we make of a suggestion like that? Well, first of all, I'm really glad Epictetus adds that little modifier in our minds. Um, I don't recommend whispering to your child, tomorrow you will die as you put them to bed. Um, but I, I think to go back to my earlier point, you know, this, when you read Epictetus's handbook in Caridion, right? You are reading not a set of doctrines, right? In other words, just to back up, if you go to a self-help section in a bookstore today, uh, you'll and you want to pick up a book about how to uh, eat well and how to live more healthily and how to uh, not be so hard on yourself, um, you'll probably have a programmatic book that that introduces itself and has espouses certain philosophical ideas and then elaborates on how you can build on them. Texts like Epictetus's or Seneca's um, or Marcus's uh, or any of the countless fragments of, of earlier pre-Socratic 
uh, Stoics that we have, um, these are not doctrinal books that are giving us a holistic philosophy. Um, I think of them, in fact, as kind of textual residue of of a performance, which is a big theme in this book, is to think of Stoicism as theater, as, as performance. Um, and so when you read this in the handbook, right, let's first imagine what an aspiring Stoic in antiquity, where would they have their copy of Epictetus? It wouldn't be in their library, okay? It wouldn't be um, uh, on a shelf somewhere or by their bedside, in, in theory. It would be, as the title suggests, something you could hold in your hand that you keep, you know, by your, uh, by your belt. And you can pull out and look at for quick advice, right? Um, so that you could read these, you know, sentences, as sententiae, these these precepts. Okay. So when you read something like you should whisper to your child or to yourself when you say goodnight to your child, tomorrow he will die, that is a performative provocation to the reader, right? It is not saying this is something that everyone must do, um, and I thoroughly believe in it. And if you don't think that your child will will die, then you're a bad Stoic. It's there as a kind of uh, prompt for the reader to then examine how that makes them feel, right? It, it, it reminds me, if anything, of kind of a Zen koan, of, of something that you don't try to extrapolate into a kind of universal epistemology, but instead you note, okay, how does that make me feel? Obviously, it makes me feel shocked. Why does that shock me? Well, of course, I want my child to live a long and healthy life. Okay, well, what am I doing to help my child have a long and healthy life? Well, I'm doing all I can. Are there things that could prevent that? Could my child die tomorrow because of forces outside of my control? Yes. How does that make me feel? Should I attach myself to those forces and think that I can prevent them? No, because that way madness lies, right? That way severe anxiety lies. If we all lie in bed at night thinking, what if something horrific happened to my family tomorrow? Um, I need to do everything I can to prevent it. A Stoic would say that you're mistaking the passions. Once again, you're using poor judgment. You're mistaking your attachment to the passions for the truth, for reason, for that which is given to us um, as part of divinity. All right. And just as one final note, what we call the writings of Epictetus are actually the kind of notes, class notes of one of his pupils, Arian, because Epictetus didn't write anything down. He was a teacher and he would he would give these lectures and he would speak to his students and they, some of them would write it down. And what we have, which, which I kind of love actually, that what we have here is just that little remnant of, of an embodied encounter between teacher and student. And so that, again, to go back to your first question, is part of what I want to recover in this book is that lived sensation, that, that, that co-presence of other beings that Stoicism insists on rather than you know the kind of version of education and philosophy that I think some of us might think of, which is you hit the archives, you crack open a tome, and for hours you you know <laughs> pour over the lines methodically to try to derive meaning from them. That's just the opposite of what a Stoic would want. They'd want you to be out there in the world. I, I like that. That that helps a lot, reframing it as a performance prompt rather than a, a dogma that, that you sort of hew to. Um, in the introduction, you talk about this interest in Stoicism bubbling up in the early modern period and becoming a target for ridicule on the stage and in print. Probably most of us are more familiar with the parodies, as, as you mentioned, than with the original sources. If we wanted to get back to what Stoicism was really about, um, you suggest we could look to Hamlet as an illustrative example. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a big fan of thinking of Hamlet as an aspiring Stoic, and I know that somewhat flies in the face of what a first impression of that that play might give you, because first of all, we get perhaps the most famous uh, Stoic of sorts in the early modern canon, which is Horatio, and Horatio is not passion slave, and Horatio uh, is the philosopher, right, who is sort of gently chided by Hamlet as not being able to explain um, the more things that are in the world outside of, of philosophy in the beginning when they see the ghost of Hamlet's father and so forth. Um, it's all well and good to think of Horatio as, as a Stoic, and indeed he, he does a great job uh, in some ways, um, but he is also kind of withheld, at least in the version of Hamlet that most of us read, he's withheld from the action in a way. He's, a, he's an observer, and he's a little closer to that kind of caricature of the Stoic 
that we discussed at the beginning of this interview, and that also was very popular in the early modern era itself. You know, part of my project is to try to recover an embodied performative sense of stoicism from a time in which, you know, Horatio is the best case scenario, but you get a lot of uh, kind of blubbering idiots standing in for and holding, uh, bearing a torch for stoicism. The one that I bring up in the book that is a favorite is uh, Justice Overdue in Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair. And, uh, you know, all the the listener really needs to know is that there's this character who during a big festival is put into the stocks for public humiliation, right? His, his arms and his head are bound uh, and people are passing him by. And he just keeps saying, I, I feel it not. I, I do not feel any pain. This is all well and good. I am simply, you know, uh, uh, looking outward at the world and, and everyone's making fun of him. And someone says, uh, what's this, uh, a stoic in the stocks? And there's a bit of a pun there that doesn't quite land with our contemporary pronunciation, but stoic would be pronounced sort of closer to the word stock, which itself could also mean a kind of fool. Um, and so there are many puns there, right? He's in the stocks. He is a stock. Uh, in some ways, he is a stock character. Um, so that's the typical Stoic. So I, I set all of that up to return to Hamlet as someone who, you know, I see his his advice to the players uh, in particular, uh, his very famous speak the speech, um, I pray thee, uh, typically on the tongue, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as a way to kind of allow his performers, the players that he's giving advice to. I have the passage here. He says, be not too tame neither, but let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance that you overstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold as twere the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time his form and pressure. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about this passage and whether or not this is a sincere uh, espousing by Shakespeare of how he would like his plays to be performed. But what really strikes me there is that Hamlet is giving a model of behavior that is um, that is attuned to what he calls nature, right? To be aware of the world around him, to make sure that he the words that he's speaking are not just cheap sentiment, because there was a big skepticism on the part of Stoics of words, which again, ironically, all we have are words that survive. We don't have that embodied side of it. He believes that performance also should should marry together action and word into a kind of holistic way of being. Um, and when we kind of dig down even further, Hamlet practices many of the famous exercises of Stoicism, perhaps the most famous being a meditation of death. Because the Stoics believe that much as we should uh, gently whisper to ourselves that our child will will die tomorrow, uh, so too should we realize that we could die, right? We could die tomorrow. That uh, as Cicero sort of um, somewhat spice, spitefully uh, explains in, in discussing a, a famous anecdote of a Stoic, uh, when finding out that one's loved one has died, uh, you could simply respond, I already knew they were mortal, right? As if to say, yeah, so? Right, um, that kind of brusque uh, uh, version of, of you know, again that satirical sense of stoicism that just is unfazed by death. Well, of course, Hamlet is very phased by death, but he confronts it. He, of course, it to be or not to be, the most famous speech in all of the Western canon. He grapples with the sense of his own mortality and what it would actually mean to die. Right. He also relentlessly theatricalizes himself and aestheticizes himself and his surroundings. He thinks through theater. Theater for him through the mousetrap is a way to puzzle through a particular problem. And for the Stoic, there is a kind of relentless way in which the world and the self are rendered into artistic creations and artistic objects. And for a lot of critics, that's a real problem, right? <laughs> what a, what a, cheapening way to go through life as if to distance yourself and say everything i'm seeing is a play right everything i'm seeing is is fake would be a very ungenerous way of putting it but not so for hamlet i think hamlet when he thinks about his oh what a rogue and peasant slave am i speech um, when he compares himself to the player and he basically says man i'm a really bad actor i'm not crying when i should be and this person is so how how can i myself become more true to my own feelings 
uh, how can I respond in a way that is in concordance with nature? That's a very stoic line of thinking. I, I should say that Hamlet's not a great stoic, but but who is, right? You know, the sages are, but they're dead. So that shouldn't prohibit us from thinking of stoicism as a philosophy that exists in the now, in the present, in the quotidian, the same way Hamlet does. And thinking through philosophy is something that is done. Um, the philosopher Pierre Adot, who was a big influence on me in this book, calls philosophy a way of life. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking of it, right? That we are all philosophizing. Perhaps you might not realize it, but you are philosophizing right now in the way you are approaching life and in your disposition towards the world around you. That's wonderful. Um, and, and I like how you're you're pointing out something that I admired in the philosopher's toothache is it, it's not that these early modern plays illustrate something about stoicism, but that both of them are in kind of conversation with each other, theater and and this philosophy. Um, yeah, I'd like to to give listeners a little bit of the flavor of the writing. Um, could you read a passage from the book? Absolutely. Let's see. Um, I'm going to start on page 43 from... This is in the first chapter. Here we go. To perform is to be like Langius's model for Lipsius. I should pause here and say that uh, I'm discussing a work of neo-Stoicism by Justus Lipsius, who was a, a early modern thinker who was kind of reviving some Stoic ideas and merging them with Christianity. And uh, and the passage I'm referencing here in particular is uh, in his dialogues with Langius, who's a kind of stand-in for the Stoic sage um, and who gives Lipsius advice for somehow both being a performer, but also uh, discarding that which is unnecessary. So that's the background. To perform is to be like Langius's model for Lipsius, bereft of wizards that mask one's true self, yet also an actor like Polis, who needs to understand the true source of his motivation. Polis is an apocryphal performer who would bring on the bones of a deceased loved one when he performed in order to cry, the ultimate method. There is a final element of Stoic performance that naturally follows from these qualities. It is ephemeral. As such, its foundations are unsteady, always threatening to dissolve. The separation of self from self can and will blur. The distancing needed to view life as theater can and will collapse over and over. This wobbly status is, however, an essential component of performance, which always evades a clear definition. In a famous formulation, Richard Schechner, drawing on the anthropological work of Victor Turner, calls the actor, quote, liminal, possessing traces of the performing self and the actual self, both and neither. Quote, all effective performances share this not, not, not quality, claims Schechner. Olivier is not Hamlet, but he is also not, not Hamlet. His performance is between the denial of being another, I am me, and the denial of not being another, I am Hamlet. To be the self and also not the self is to be in the breach between fixed poles of identity. Lipsius is not fully Lipsius, not a realization of his authentic being, but nor is he someone else. To perform is, in its purest sense, not so much to be something, nor simply to imitate it, but to fleetingly embody a set of practices, to recognize self-constitution in the recurring moment of the present. That present moment will die away, but so too could it always be rescripted into existence anew. To act is, as Peggy Phelan notes, to be transient and thus to resist codification. Quote, performance becomes itself through disappearance. That's a very famous passage from Peggy Phelan about um, the nature of performance. This essential state of non-essence is an obsessive point of interest for early modern playwrights as well, whether in comedic energies that call attention with metatheatrical playfulness to the nothingness at the core of the theatrical endeavor, or the overweening willpower of the tragedies bent as they are on replicating and critiquing the formation of power and the limit of that power's ability to inflect the actual playhouse. In the chapters that follow, I study the Stoic performances that revive themselves in the early modern theater. It is to the theater that we must look to find the sweaty, messy, fumbling, brief reality of Stoicism, 
a philosophy dually founded on the body's enmeshment in and removal from the world. Like Ado's conjecture that the philosopher is both of and not of the everyday, the theater is both an extension of and removal from its surrounding world. The performance of Stoicism is not coextensive with the aesthetics of the early modern stage, but the theater smuggles in philosophical energies by dint of its own obsessive self-critique. In this sense, to watch a play is to undergo philosophical work, and to philosophize is to perform. Nice. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, writing and revision strategies and approaches to style. How, how do you craft a passage like that? Oh, thanks for that question. I <laughs> I wish I had a kind of um, handy guide for style, which is, not, which is not something I necessarily think about because style kind of emerges from revising the projection of one's own thoughts through writing. So, you know, I'm definitely a fan of just writing, 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 just get it out there every day when you're, when you're working on a book or an essay or any piece of writing, just get up and throw some things at the page. Um, I give, I gave myself, uh, kind of limits of, you know, I will wake up and I will write uh, one single spaced page that will continue my ideas. Now, maybe I don't have any grist for that mill. Maybe I didn't do a lot of research. Well, then I'll just write about things I've already written about that I'll mull it over some more. And in a way, I suppose this is uh, the, the medium is the message here that in doing so, that is a form of thinking, right? That, that I would write and kind of lose myself in the free writing. And then as I revised, you know, certain elliptical phrases or, or things that in the moment I was just kind of thinking in terms of sonically or almost aesthetically what I was writing and how it sounds, I'll kind of pluck those and revise them and re-stitch them together. And th the passage I just read in particular is in its own way, a form of signposting that is telling the reader here's everything I've discussed in this chapter. This is at the very end of the chapter. And this chapter in particular, I really wanted to avoid it just being a kind of data dump of here is every mention of Stoicism in some early modern philosophy. And so I, I tried to bind it together in a certain progression. I, I didn't necessarily set out with that progression in mind, but as I wrote and revised and wrote and revised and wrote and revised, I realized I was kind of mapping out a specific trajectory, a philosophical trajectory of early modern Stoicism, that it frames life as theatrical, that it presents itself as a disposition and not a doctrine, um, that it is not transcendental, it is non-Platonic, and it is not mimetic, that it doubles inward, an, uh, an observing, judging eye inward as it does outward, and that it is a practice of um, ascent, Right, which is a key idea in a lot of Stoic thought that you assent to certain images and impressions in your mind, um, and that I wove that together with kind of meditations on theater and the ontology and philosophy of theater, which in many ways is very similar. That you distance yourself from the world. Bertolt Brecht, very famous theatrical innovator, believed in the power of critical spectatorship and distancing oneself. That the theater itself is sort of both, as I say in the passage, both of and not of the world. Um, and of course, that's a point that has been made many times uh, and thought about many times, but I'm sort of weaving these ideas together. And hopefully the reader will end the chapter and think, oh, that was a coherent <laughs> you know, narrative that braided itself together into a kind of statement of purpose at the end, rather than ending with, you know, and also here's another quality of stoicism that's interesting. Bye, right? You know, that's not very rewarding. And so I kind of wanted to end with a, a, a crescendo of sorts that would then lead you into the case studies that follow so that as you pick up the next chapter, um, you would view it with all of that bubbling in your mind. I wonder, do you, um, do you read out loud when you're revising? Is that a practice that you have? Because, you know, this is a complex idea, the idea of non-essence, but when you were just reading a, a line like this, um, it is to the theater that we must look to find the sweaty, messy, fumbling, brief reality of Stoicism, a philosophy duly founded on the body's enmeshment in and removal from the world. That's a complex idea, but I, I felt like 
it reads very naturally. It, it reads very organically. Um, even as I was reading it from the book, um, it, it felt like um, I'm part of a conversation with you. Yeah, I, I do. I certainly love reading out loud uh, different passages, specifically passages that are kind of thorny, as you say, or that I'm working through. Um, I am careful, though, because there are a lot of things that sound interesting and conversational, but then on a page can seem a little uh, strange or dull or prosaic. And similarly, there are a lot of sentences that work in the act of writing and reading, and yet when brought up, you know, kind of um, live and read out loud, can sound a little confusing. So you're right, I try to thread that needle so that it is both conversational. And I think I was just really inspired by both the Stoics themselves, who who write very conversationally. I, I actually gave a brief paper on Stoicism at a, a very fun early modern conference that I'm sure you're familiar with. But to let our, our listeners know, it's called the Blackfriars Conference. And what's kind of fun about it is, if you want, you can, scholars of early modern theater and Shakespeare can give a paper and use, or, or rather collaborate with, these fantastic professional Shakespearean actors who are members of the company. And so I worked with a, a brilliant performer who was part of the Blackfriars program and had them read passages of Seneca out loud as if it were a monologue. <laughs> and it works. You know, if you read Seneca's epistles and read it out loud, in particular, there's there one letter that I, I, I kind of really dive into uh, at, at the end of the... Um, at the end of the book, in the conclusion, when I talk about uh, the liberal arts and the, uh, the the current quote unquote crisis of the humanities and and Seneca's ideas uh, in letter eighty eight, Seneca really rails against education in this very fun kind of way, and it works as a monologue. It's it's it was very funny. And so, in that same way, I do try to think like this is a live conversation I'm having with someone. So I do. And I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think or what your listeners think. I do okay, I, I, often, I'd say, use the kind of you, right? You would do this and you might think this if you were uh, an aspiring Stoic. Similarly, I might say we, right? Uh, um, we do this, we do that. Now, the, I think there's a lot of criticism out there, very rightfully grounded criticism in the use of you and we in academic writing, because it kind of assumes that, hey, you're just like me, <laughs> your identity is the same as mine. Um, and that can be very problematic. So I, I completely understand that criticism, but I kind of went for it anyway, to kind of, in the spirit of stoicism, kind of bring in the reader to my own discussion. Um, yeah, that, that's all awesome. You know, the context of the Blackfriars um, conference, what, what a great way to develop a piece of writing. Um, and, and, you know, you talk a little bit about you and we, um, I, I suppose I am more troubled by the badgering use of we or you, a, a sort of insistence that I, I go along with a point, um, which I didn't feel um, was the case with, with your particular book. Um, but perhaps we can um, shift to chapter two of The Philosopher's Toothache, which looks at two, you know, relatively underexplored plays by John Marston that are called the Antonio plays. You look at scenes where Stoicism is satirized in Marston's plays. Um, first, you could, maybe you could um, explain to our audience who John Marston was, um, where he fits in to early modern theater, and what does Marston get wrong about Stoicism, and how is his misunderstanding of the Stoics, and I'm quoting you here, mystical exile from the material plane, somehow helpful in understanding Stoicism. Yeah, I think one nice way to understand Marston, or at least how Marston was thought of in his time, is there's a play by Ben Jonson called Potaster, in which he satirizes a lot of his contemporaries in early modern playwriting, including Shakespeare. And also Marston. And there's a kind of Marston stand-in character who, in one very funny scene, begins to kind of be doubled over with indigestion and nausea. And he has to, 
belch, vomit, you know, kind of project out of his mouth whatever is troubling him in his stomach. But instead of it being food or or alcohol or toxins, it's words. He's choking on words and he's sick on words. And I, I don't have my copy nearby. I wish I could I could grab it. But he starts kind of belching out these big, absurd, uh, long, pretentious uh, words and portmanteaus. And I think I think what Johnson is satirizing there is that Marston was very much thought of as a playwright who, first of all, was obsessed with uh, with bodily functions um, and wrote a lot of uh, body b a w d y uh, plays and comedies that that exploited that, but also was thought of sometimes as making these almost unreadable. We were just talking about readability, and I encourage the listeners of this podcast to Google Marston pick a passage from any play at random and try to just read it out loud. It could sometimes be a, a real mouthful with these long kind of to our ears gobbledygook um, sentences. That said, uh, he was brilliant and hilarious and his plays are still performed today and often to great success. Uh, I think there is certainly a stylistic way to embody his writing, uh, alien to our ears though it might be. Um, but he wrote the Antonio plays, Antonio and uh, Melida and Antonio's Revenge. And you might hear those titles and think they're awfully uh, serious affairs. Antonio's Revenge in particular sounds like it could be a a, a very um, solemn, bloody affair. But really, Marston, much like Johnson, as a matter of fact, is obsessed with undermining the theatricality and pretense and artifice of of his performances and of his productions. And so we get in the sort of wonderful uh, induction to the first of the Antonio plays. I'm sort of flipping through to see if I can find it. But we have this wonderful scene in which the boy actors, right? This would be performed by a boy's company, I believe at St. Paul's, when they are all trying to put on their costumes and they're arguing about which role they're going to play and they start talking about uh, how some of these performances, some of the characters that they're supposed to play are absurd, or how can I possibly play uh, a kind of vicious uh, revenging character, or wait, I'm someone who's then disguised. It's, it's this weird kind of peek under the hood as we're seeing the actors play themselves baffled by the characters that they have to play in the actual play that will follow, right? So it's this kind of very multifaceted um, snake eating its own tail. And and so Marston loved. I, there's another point in in the place in which a character runs on with a beard half on, right? As a boy actor with a with a beard half on, as if to say, "Oh my God, I, I forgot my cue." Right? Of course, that's written in and that's prescribed. And so he adds all these little cracks and fissures in the theatrical apparatus itself in a really fun way. Um, and so what we get with these plays, it's really less plays about revenge and more about the performance of a play about revenge. And in that way, I do think it is very stoic in a way, which is funny because Marston himself would mock the Stoics relentlessly in his poetry and also has a character in these plays um, sort of toss aside Seneca at one point and says, you know, despite philosophy, I will uh, rise, right? I, I don't need your silly philosophy. I will become myself. Um, and he he casts philosophy as a foil to embodied action. And yet, as I sort of posit, in the way that he breaks the... He, he almost views the theater as this unknowable, unsteady, shaky world that these poor actors are thrown into and they have no idea what will happen next. (laughs) And they're forced to say these words they don't fully understand. And they're trying to throw on their costumes and they're being viewed by an audience that might hate them. And they have to wrestle with these words by a pretentious playwright. And as a result, they're grappling with the sheer unknowability of the world uh, and kind of on this unsteady foundation of what power or providence might be on the other side of the curtain controlling everything or not. And in that way, it's very stoic. Um, That's a part of stoic, the idea that we might just be 
that we'll never have any idea what gods or what forces are controlling our life. That's definitely a part of Stoicism that Christianity was not a fan of for obvious reasons, right? Um, and so when you get to the Antonio plays and you get to Marston, I see this kind of radical understanding of fate as something so unknowable and and so, you know, as as embodied in the theater itself, so unpredictable that much like a Stoic trying to find peace with the fact that, as I believe Seneca says, we're all just little tiny mites running around with no idea what the bigger world that we're part of. Um, and we have to find peace with that. Or, you know, think of the famous scene from uh, The Third Man, the Carol Reed film, where Orson Welles is on top of the, Karis, uh, the, excuse me, the Ferris wheel in Vienna, looking down and saying, look at all those little dots, right? All the people, they're just little dots. You wouldn't mind if one of them just disappeared, right? That we have to imagine ourselves as those little inconsequential beings. As a matter of fact, that's one of the exercises that the Stoics would encourage that we do, the, the view from afar. Imagine that you're viewing yourself and the world from, you know, when that, not necessarily up in space, but high, so high up that you're no more than a speck. And what does that do to your sense of the importance of self? Uh, is there something soothing in saying, eh, maybe uh, I'm not all that significant after all, and I have no idea what tomorrow will bring, right? And embracing that. And so that's a very Stoic idea. So again, and this runs throughout the book, Marston is is very critical and rightfully so of the Stoic sage figure of the that parodic extreme version of Stoicism, less so of actual Stoicism, because his play, I think, enacts a form of Stoicism that is very powerful and very thoughtful. I'd like to turn to um, your reading of The Atheist Atheist's Tragedy, a drama by Cyril Turner, published in 1611. In it, you see this like irreconcilable brew of atheism, stoicism, and Christianity as a kind of spiritual exercise for us, the audience. How does that play stage that experience for us? Yeah, this is a fascinating play. And and again, you know, I have some Shakespeare in this book, but I also really wanted to call attention to these other plays that I think are really productive to read and, and think through, but that get less attention. I don't think there's been a critical edition of the atheist tragedy in some time. So as the title suggests, this is a tragedy about atheism, but in reading the play, or if you're lucky in seeing the play, you might be puzzled by that title as to who the actual atheist is. Now, it might quite obviously seem to be the nominal villain, someone named rather gloriously named Damville, who espouses that his God is reason. Okay, you know, fair enough. Perhaps he's the atheist. Yet at the same time, I kind of dig into atheism as actually a quite slippery term uh, in the early modern era, perhaps today too. Maybe most infamously, Milton refers to the fallen angels, the demons in Paradise Lost as the as a group of atheists. I, I, I don't totally remember the, the the phrase he uses, but he refers to them as atheists, which wouldn't necessarily make all that sense, seeing as they've just <laughs> been expelled from heaven and, pro- and certainly believe in God. I mean, that's not their problem. They don't like him, but they, that they believe in him. And so the term could sometimes mean a kind of worship of reason, as we see with uh, Danville in this play, over a worship of the divine or the unknown. It could mean a kind of turn to materialism. And, you know, the most famous atheist or labeled atheist of the early modern era was Christopher Marlowe, who was supposedly exposed as an atheist in uh, a, a letter that, that he, he apparently wrote. Uh, that claimed that Jesus was, a, I believe, a juggler and that the miracles are tricks and that everything can be reduced to a kind of material, concrete reality as opposed to something divine and unknowable uh, that one must extend one's faith towards, right? So again, that seems kind of obvious. But at the same time, there's the tradition of the doctrine of the incarnation and of creation, 
which would posit that there, is, you know, in a Christian worldview, that there is the presence of God imbued in the material world, so that one could practice a kind of materialism that also recognizes in materiality the presence of the divine. Okay, so that's just that sort of table setting to say that when when we look, well, I should say too that the paradigmatic example that kind of launches this chapter for me is a passage in Acts in which St. Paul is confronted by Stoics uh, on Mars Hill, and he turns to them and says, uh, hey, I, you know, I noticed an inscription, an altar that you made to an unknown god. And you're believing in an unknown god. I'm here to tell you that the god that you should love is everywhere, right? You, you can know the god, look around, and then you can know God through, through knowing the world, right? Which is all nice and well, but isn't that also, doesn't that almost shade into a brand of atheism when you believe that you can encounter God through, through the material world, right? Um, and so with that kind of ambivalence in mind, I turn to the play, and as you say, I do label it as a kind of spiritual exercise for the audience. And the way I do that is I see the plays, and I say this not necessarily in a pejorative way, but the play's thinness, right? This is a play that is very, it, it very much is an, a play that stages itself in a, a, a way almost reminiscent of heraldry in which the stage pictures are set, these tableaux vivants almost, that, ex, that demonstrate a certain precept or idea in which the characters, quite frankly, don't have much depth. They are, their names kind of indicate who they are. They uh, espouse their very specific beliefs. There are these long kind of ekphratic um, descriptions that paint a picture in the audience's minds. Um, this is not Hamlet, right? And, and that's often used as a way to to kind of critique or just brush aside this play. But I think what it calls out on the part of the audience is the importance of belief, the belief of the audience as a motivating element that allows the the apparatus, the the material reality of the stage to gain and be imbued with a kind of power that makes it, it its meanings excessive and and beyond the limits of its material confines which in a way means that we too are practicing a form of faith as theater goers not just at the atheist tragedy but i would argue any play that you see in the way that you in viewing and listening and engaging with the play are giving it a sense of vitality and even spirituality that lifts it beyond just the the mere sum of its parts, right? There's something irreducible about it. And so I see the play in a way as, a, as even though, yes, I recognize it is in some ways a kind of programmatic um, tragedy of sorts. It's also very strange. There are some wonderfully strange eddies and currents in this play and, and tangents that it goes on that are quite lovely. Uh, and it kind of climaxes gloriously in Danville lifting an axe and having it fall on his own head, uh, which is wonderful because for a play called The Atheist Tragedy, there's no intervention or intercession of any divine power at all. And, and the way that the, the, the atheist, nominal atheist, dies appears to simply be dumb luck, <laughs> right? He brains himself with an axe. Which then also, I think, tests the audience to think like, well, what, what is going on here in terms of the presence of faith or of spirituality in, in the world uh, of this play, right? And how is it our obligation to then, to then give it that, that power? So what does that have to do with Stoicism? Stoicism, the physics of Stoicism, that's a term we would use today um, in dividing it into different disciplines, not something that would be thought of in the original version of Stoicism. But Stoic physics believed that there was a kind of world soul, right? That in other words, the, the sum totality of all that is material in the world, and for the Stoics, everything is material, okay? Panoima, right? The ether, these sort of other elements that, that are themselves material. The soul is material, the mind is material, the images that one gets in one's mind, as we discussed earlier in this interview, those are material as well. It's relentlessly material. And yet, that materiality comprises what they call God. So there too, 
we have that kind of tissue thin separation between that which is a kind of grand statement of a cosmology and something trivializing right in thinking of the the complete materiality of the world and i should say and this is a theme that that i bring up a lot in the book and i've mentioned it before but that also distinguishes stoicism from plato and from a kind of metaphysics of of meaning in which we say oh well th- this is all just the the shallow material trappings that allow us to give you know dialectically we will engage with so that we can get to the great abstract immaterial beyond there is no beyond for stoicism right your fifth chapter takes up Othello and the play's engagement with service, slavery, and race. You argue that, quote, place perched on the tectonic line between enforced servitude and enslaved reason, often weaving the two modes of slavery together, end quote. Can you walk us through what the play Othello can illuminate for us about Stoicism? Yeah, absolutely. I was really drawn to this play because, you know, I start the chapter with a, a kind of notorious and noxious uh, interview that uh, Kanye West, of all people, gave in uh, 2018, in which he sort of says that the he wonders why slaves in the United States didn't simply free themselves of their shackles, right? And, and for obvious reasons, this is an egregious misunderstanding of chattel slavery, what kind of intrigues me about that, though, is that in Stoicism, there is a lot of discussion of bondage and of servitude. And, and this is a, an appropriation of servitude that will become very valuable to St. Paul as well, who is in direct discussion with, in some ways, the Stoics, as we discussed in the last uh, the last chapter. And so the servitude of the Stoic, right, to be... Uh, to serve and to assent to reason and judgment and proper judgment and an, and, and an understanding of what is truth, you know, that servitude in which one can simply will themselves into being free, regardless of their lot in life, right? That one can be, you know, in any abject state and yet be ultimately free if they free their minds, right? To use the sort of cliche. That uh, that idea has a kind of stoic root and it leads people like T.S. Eliot, rather um, notoriously in his reading of Othello, to say that stoicism is a philosophy best suited to slaves, right? That he sees, he sees stoicism as complicit with a kind of apathy um, and with selling a false consciousness, to people who are themselves perhaps materially enslaved. T.L.S. Eliot doesn't push it in that political direction. A lot of other scholars have. And what fascinated me is the contact point, as you mentioned in the quote from the, from the book that you, you just cited, the contact point between a material understanding of slavery, because Othello, of course, was a slave and has been freed and is also in a precarious state in which he could easily lose his free unhoused nature, as he says, and return to a state of of slavery of sorts, which philosophically think you know framing that one can see that in itself as a state of of almost permanent overdetermined slavery so the contact point between that form of slavery and a form of slavery that is spiritual philosophical right and and a service of sorts that one should one should be a servant. And so it is, I sort of read the play as a tragic misapprehension of one form of slavery as the other. So in other words, Othello acts as if he can be a confidant to Iago and have his passions controlled much in the way that Lucilius is a, a pupil of Seneca's uh, or much in the way of any number of Stoics can learn from other Stoic exercises. Othello thinks almost he's undergoing a kind of Stoic exercise, and we see that in the way he tries to control himself before he um, has a seizure, before his imagination passions carry him uh, away, his his reason away. Um, But of course, he's misapprehending that, and he himself, as a Black man, in a time in which, while England did not 
technically have slavery, it participated in the uh, slave trade and profited from it and had many forms of servitude that that echoed and in some cases emulated slavery. That Othello, and of course Othello is in Venice, in which he's probably walking around seeing slaves every day and thinking there but for the grace of God go I, right? So Othello's misapprehension of the servitude, the Stoic notion of servitude, which is quite noble, um, as a kind of slavery that he can escape from is part of his undoing. And so I, I saw that as an underexamined part of the play. And I turn especially to Stoicism's uh, writings, particularly Seneca's writings on anger um, and de, de ira and the way in which one had to essentially engage in a dialogue with oneself in order to acknowledge and abandon one's own anger. So that's the kind of way in which I I I view it. And you know, of course, Othello is not capable of freedom by the end. He is, uh, a, a, as many have pointed out, he asks for his story to be told, and it is not told. Um, he is almost immediately ignored and turned into a kind of uh, tragic example, um, and he is not allowed to have the capacity to represent himself in a way that stoicism allows. That's, that was sort of my end to that play. Um, and I, which I just think is, is so brilliant and, and such a deeply, I don't know, just a, a, a such a rich layered examination. The more I read it, the more I think about it, uh, about how the, the materiality of race and of bondage meets headlong its philosophical conceptions. Finally, I'd like to turn to your conclusion, where you reflect on teaching Stoicism and the humanities. The title of your conclusion, very memorably, is The Dust of the Humanities. Yeah, that's a kind of riff on Seneca, who talks about the dust of the liberal arts in his letter 88. He kind of, as I mentioned earlier, he just brushes off the liberal arts. He calls the the the, the people who learn, who teach the so-called liberal arts, um, starving vomiters, which is just a lovely turn of phrase we should all uh, bring back into our vocabulary. But even though Seneca sounds so cynical and angry towards education, what he's railing against is not education per se, but he's actually railing against a particular form of education that sadly and ironically, he has been consigned to, at least in the early modern era, which is what we might call today knowledge transfer. That is viewing education as a way in which the teacher can transfer certain facts and knowledge, to, you know, as a vessel of that knowledge to students, right? Um, which is all well and good. Don't get me wrong. I would like my students to have to know certain facts and to remember certain things. And yet, and you know, John, I know you're passionate about teaching as well. Uh, to to reduce teaching to that is to lose sight of the embodied and performative nature of that that we've been talking about this whole interview of the 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 way in which thinking takes place in real time and a kind of acknowledgement of the actual dispositions and feeling of teaching in the room when it's happening which no one really talks about right i i've read a lot of books on teaching i haven't necessarily read a book on teaching that, I mean, there are, there are certainly out there, this is by no means an original thought, but that just acknowledges the particularities, the particularities, excuse me, of place, of space, of time. You know, when we teach, we do not enter a hermetically sealed little room apart from the world around us in which we espouse certain structures and systems that are then absorbed docilely by the people in that room, even though more and more models of education have been valuing that more and, you know, as a kind of administrative um, corporatization of higher education, certainly, right? And so this so-called sort of crisis of the humanities that I'm sure we've all heard that phrase before, and I'm sympathetic to this, oftentimes what it does is it posits a kind of practicality 
to the humanities as if to say like, okay, well, the value of teaching Shakespeare uh, is that it can help you get a job in finance because it, you can understand, think critically and understand complicated texts. And, you know, if you can read a passage from The Winter's Tale, you'll be fine reading a balance sheet, so on and so forth, right? Uh, which is fine. I think we all need to do that song and dance. And that's important. And that I've certainly coached many of my students as to how they can tell their parents they're going to become an English major instead of computer science or so forth. But what you lose is that that kind of in the moment feeling, embodied feeling of interacting in a kind of public community of thinkers and of reading as a communal act, of thinking as a communal act, um, and acknowledging all of those things that that Seneca wants instead, which is what wants to see instead stand in for education, which is a kind of practiced way of presenting oneself to the world. And no, how do we do that? How do we incorporate that in class? I mean, I think that's a very tricky question, but I certainly think that it begins with an acknowledgement. It begins with an openness to sensation, which is, you know, where we began this discussion, which is the Stoics disposition in life and an acknowledgement to the students. I think we all learned something after the last few years uh, living in this pandemic, which is that uh, we can't, we have to acknowledge the situations of, of our lives, right? We can't enter our rooms in hazmat suits and say like, anyway, where did we leave off? Let's, let's kick off with uh, Sonnet 20, right? No, we have to say like, hey guys, the world is pretty fragile right now. And I know we're all feeling a certain way and I, I don't want to pry. I don't mean to get overly personal. I just want to let you know that I'm acknowledging we're all human beings in this room and we're all aspiring to be better. <laughs> right and so that's the that's the needle to thread that's great you're reminding me of actually something i i read last night by david sterling brown and he teaches this class called crossing the sonic line and one of the activities he does early on is have students write out all of the so sounds they hear in the classroom. And so, you know, they write the heater is buzzing or someone's tapping their foot or the chalk on the board. And he said just um, systematically, students do not write down the sound of their own voice. You know, that, that's something that's always a kind of gap. Um, and how they're perceiving the soundscape of the room. They hear the professor's voice, they hear other authorities in the room, but not um, their own voice, which, which I found to be, you know, really insightful and kind of motivating as a teacher. Um, my, my last question involves um, the future, looking forward. Um, I know this book is fresh off the press, but have you given thought to what your next project might be? Yeah, I, a little bit. I I have a sort of uh, big, vague idea that hasn't really coalesced into much yet. And I have a very specific, small idea. And the specific, small idea is I have been really drawn to the play, The Comedy of Errors, Shakespeare's comedy. And I was rereading it. It was actually in, in preparing for a seminar at the Shakespeare Association of America, the last meeting that we had uh, where we met. I had a, a paper there that started to think through there's a, there's a just beautiful speech in that play in which the image of a drop of water lost in an ocean, right. And then reemerging as a single drop of water is used as a way to think through how one person can lose a partner, a twin, uh, and and know that they're out there, but be unable to find them, knowing that they are a unique drop of water, but that they are caught in an ocean, unable to see them. That's an image that returns later in the play as well. And I was thinking through that, and it, it just kept reminding me in an in a way that felt almost verging on tasteless, but sort of a, a, a radical, hopefully, way. It kept reminding me of accounts of the Middle Passage. And in particular, the work of people like Cydia Hartman um, and Frank Wilderson and Orlando Patterson, who have written about, uh, and Christina Sharp, I should say, who have written about the about slavery as a kind of ontological absence, not a temporal event, but as something that has affected the very conception of blackness itself. And and 
and there's an incredible amount of work I've just been immersing myself in, in uh, pre-modern critical race studies for the work of, you know, uh, Matthew Chapman, DeMarco Hendricks, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a rich archive. And so I've been really steeping myself in those thinkers and in thinking about how, how in particular that play posits a kind of absence at its core, an, an event, right? The shipwreck that separates the twins and their slaves. And then that shipwreck is something not that happens and is bound temporally, but that is carried with them as a drop of water that is lost in the ocean. And so that led me to thinking through different performance histories of that play. And there is an interesting tradition of that play being performed by performers of color, directed by uh, people of color and and yeah, that's true about a lot of Shakespeare's work, but I was drawn in particular to this kind of trend. And I came across a, a beautiful passage by the director, Kent Gash, who directed a, a, an all-Black production at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, in which he he thought of the way the twins in that play see each other and kind of recognize each other, but are not sure, as the way Black people in America in the Reconstruction saw each other and wondered if they once knew each other before slavery and recognized something. I thought that was so beautiful. And then I I thought through, okay, what are ways in which the performance of this play perhaps gets to this uncanny way in which this play is about race, even though it never comes out and says it. And so that's something I'm 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 really kind of um, diving into. And that might be an essay, we'll see. And then the bigger project, which is very vague, like I said, is coming out of the philosopher's toothache. I really became interested in spiritual exercises and in particular St. Ignatius and the tradition of, of of a kind of spiritual exercise that attains. So, uh, and the second project, which is admittedly quite big and, and quite vague at this point, is an exploration of um, experience. It's tentatively called performance and experience, but I'm interested in how the notion of experience names a kind of limit of that which can be performed. So again, I mean, even by the way I'm talking about it, you can tell it's all just kind of sketched out at this point. But I'm 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 kind of fascinated by how spiritual exercises by St. Ignatius and others, which in many ways come out of the spiritual exercises of Marcus and of the, the Stoics, how that creates and and disrupts a sense of subjectivity that is that is not performative, um, but is in fact an acknowledgement of experience. I, I, I keep returning to that term experience and wondering if that, what it means to experience life and how that we can find a new way to think through something non-agential and non-willful, but is still a mark of a form of life. So again, that's that's what I'm thinking through. I don't even know where that will take me, but um, but it's the fun phase right now where I'm just kind of, you know, traipsing around the library and picking up books and thinking and mulling and, and, uh, and yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll look forward to both of those projects. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Donovan. Thanks so much for having me, John.